this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme, soul-searching among the humanitarian aid agencies as they stand accused of institutional racism. Earlier this summer, an open letter signed by a thousand current and former members of the medical charity Médecins Sans Frontières criticised the organisation for a culture of white privilege. Now, it's not an entirely new accusation. In fact, it's been directed at European-based aid agencies so often that it's even been satirised by some in the aid community, like this group from Norway. They have so little... Yet they smile. For only $9, you can make a difference in these poor little angels' lives. So please reach into your hearts and dig into your pockets, and together we can save Africa. And that concept that Europe gives and Africa gets has been a part of humanitarian work for more than a century. Not just material goods... Europe apparently offers values and ideas as well. This genuine ICRC message gives the honour of inventing humanity in war to a white European male, the founder of the Red Cross, Henri Dunant. Civilians affected by war. But it was Henri Dunant whose initiative and enterprise paved the way and made a difference, showing humanity amidst inhumanity. So, to discuss whether modern humanitarian work remains too paternalistic, even institutionally racist, I'm joined by Lisbeth Elbrecht, Director General of MSF Switzerland. We are an incredibly diverse organisation, as are uh, most humanitarian organisations today. It has become a lot richer, it has become a lot uh, closer to the beneficiaries, but our structures haven't changed. Alan Wendwer of the International Committee of the Red Cross. It's more difficult for me as an African to get into a position of leadership, a position of management, um, than it would for someone else. And our resident analyst, Daniel Warner. If MSF has 90% of its staff local hires, it has five operational centers in Western Europe. Why aren't they decentralized? So just before we start the discussion proper, let's have a few more details from that letter written by MSF staff. In it, they said the organization had failed people of color, both staff and patients, failed to tackle institutional racism, and was run by a privileged white minority. Now, that's pretty harsh criticism for an organization that's won a Nobel Prize and is one of the world's most respected humanitarian agencies. So, Lisbeth Elbrecht, you're with MSF. 
Were you surprised by that letter? I cannot say it came as a surprise. Debate around uh, racism and other forms of discrimination or, you know, the lack of sufficient inclusion in our processes, in in who we are as an organization, was uh, high on the agenda for several years already. MSF is an association of members. Anybody who works with the organization or has ever worked with the organization can be a member. So we had all just uh, been working on new four-year strategic plans and we had actually realized we had to make this uh, a priority and put it high on our agenda. It really reflected everybody's frustration with, well, yeah, if supposedly we're taking it seriously and you've heard our voices, but then why is it changing at such a slow pace? Alan Wenwa, ICRC, let's bring you in there. Lisbeth's been talking there about progress was already underway, but she said slowly. What did that letter, from your experience, what did it say to you? Actually, reading that letter and then talking to colleagues as well, it seemed like they were writing about us. Everybody could relate. And a friend of mine called me immediately, a a colleague, and said, this is ICRC. Someone uh, wrote about us. And we share a lot of the, the frustration and a lot of the basically just knowing that we also are in that situation. Uh, coming as a resident staff or what you call a national staff, we could we could really understand what they were saying and it, it made sense to us and we could see this is what we call it, institutional racism. It made sense to me and I thought it was long overdue. And for someone like me who's coming from a national staff and now I'm uh, working as an international staff member, I can see the differences. I can see why um, I would be upset with the conditions that I had before and the privileges that I have now. So it's, it's nothing new. It's, um, and let me just go beyond the humanitarian organizations and just say, as a person of color, living in a country that is considered one of the poorer countries, you sort of see it everywhere. It's not just in the humanitarian organizations. It's in everything you do. As a Kenyan, if I decided I want to fly to the UK for holiday, I would have to go through so many things, visas, they want to know bank statements, where do you work, they want so many things, and yet if I was a UK citizen and coming to Kenya, it doesn't matter whether I'm black or white, it would be much easier. They'd say, well, you want a plane ticket, you have to pay, get on the flight, enjoy your stay. So it goes beyond humanitarian organizations, and I feel that once a humanitarian organization lands in a country like Kenya, they'll adopt the policies and the norms that we have. And honestly, it does feel unfair. It feels really unfair to be working for an international organization and realizing that, oh, they, they came here and uh, they basically adopted the systemic racism that already exists. And so that's the kind of thing that we're looking at and we're saying it's not right. Danny, what do you think? Are you surprised to hear this from two of uh the world's biggest, most well-known humanitarian aid agencies. I was a little shocked. Uh, And what I want to talk about is what I call the democratic deficiency. If MSF has 90% of its staff local hires, it has five operational centers in Western Europe. Why aren't they decentralized? So not only is it a racist problem, but it's an organizational problem that's not democratic. So the difference between a local staff and an international staff must be enormous. Well, let's put that to you, Lisbeth, because it's true, isn't it? Plenty of local staff, but the the decision-making and the kind of 
the power is uh, is concentrated in European hands. And is that what MSF would describe as institutional racism? I would definitely say so. So the Eurocentered decision making, of course, for us, it is it is historical, and there has been also a lot of change since uh, MSF was created almost 50 years ago. We are an incredibly diverse organization, as are uh, most humanitarian organizations today, and it has definitely improved our action. It has become a lot richer. It has become a lot uh, closer to the beneficiaries. I mean. But our structures haven't changed. The majority of the decision-making is still sitting in Europe. So we're actually very much aware of that. Uh, working on that, a lot of regional offices have been created. One of their main objectives has been in MSF to recruit international staff, to uh, deploy uh, staff members, colleagues who were national or resident staff and, and take advantage of the experience. And so... Actually, MSF has finally created, so the like international board has approved the creation of a sixth center in West Africa that is now being developed. We have a, a lot of regional offices. We have um, development of a section in East Africa that's on the agenda for vote in our next international board. But we totally agree that more radical, more upscaled action is needed. And I have spent my whole life on the field and part of it in developing one of those uh, regional offices in Mexico, coming to Geneva, <laughs> the center of humanitarianism. It matters where the decision is based geographically. Not everyone wants to come and work in Europe, wants to make that step. So creating opportunities in different parts of the world will influence the decision makers, no, will change the voice. So yes, we agree, we need to step up and we have listened now and we need to take uh, strong action. I wondered whether to ask you, Alan, it's true, the aid agencies, certainly the ICRC and MSF, they are focused on this. You want to be global, you don't want to bring this kind of post-colonial attitude to your work. Now, I heard that in the ICRC, the largest kind of recruitment sector is from Africa. But are the people from Africa being promoted to positions of responsibility? What, what's your experience there, Alan? Well, I guess I'm living proof that uh, there are changes happening. To just go from four and a half years in the field as a resident staff, apply for a position in Geneva and actually get it. I actually thought that was one big step in the right direction for the ACRC. We do have colleagues who are being promoted from Africa and they have um, got leadership positions. I have seen it. I don't know if um, it's growing. I've seen their development and they encouraged me to find opportunities, apply. It's possible. It's not easy. That's the, the other part. It's more difficult for me as an African to get into a position of leadership, a position of management, um, than it would for someone else. So um, someone who is not... Even in the ICRC. Exactly, in the ICRC and in many organizations I, I, that I've worked with. But at least this organization is one where I've seen it happen. It's happened to me. My personal experience is that it is happening. Um, maybe not as fast as I would want, but it's happening. Danny, do you want to come in there? Yeah, it just seems to me there's a two-tier system. There's the international system based in Geneva and there's the local system. Uh, and basically, these organizations have been very vertical. Uh, 
uh, in the sense that it's the headquarters here in Geneva making decision. But I think in all modern businesses, the object has been to decentralize decision making. So even if you open a branch or an office in Senegal or somewhere else, the question is, are all the decision making being made in Geneva? And is it still vertical instead of horizontal? Lisbeth, I can see you nodding there. Yeah, we actually, we, sh we talk about re-centralization. <laughs> the decisions should be made where the communities are that we are assisting. We have to relearn a lot of lessons, no, as we evolve. You need to involve much more the communities in the design of, of the response. I mean, the first solidarity, I mean, very often the solidarity sits within the community. We see today like what happened in Beirut. It is amazing, you know, the way people in, in, in crisis will, will stand up. And we also should remember that we cross borders when a society is at its limit. So very much so this re-centralization. And I do think, of course, the, the vertical structure is also very mu much um, justified by the fact that we very often work in, in conflictual contexts, in insecure okay. contexts that requires this vertical structure. And that might be true from some part of the management and the decision making, but is honestly a lousy excuse for not working in a much more horizontal way. But it is, and there may be that is the part that is systematic and structural. We've done it for so many years in a different way. And we have become large organizations. And so it is a challenging process, the change that it requires. But there is no other way. Well, we've talked about structural, institutional issues that need to be changed. Danny was talking about things very vertical I want to change the subject and look at something which is a bit more gut. We just hear a little slightly humorous example of that now. The gifts we bring don't mean anything to us, but their faces light up like nothing I've ever seen before. Michael, do you have Danishes in Africa? No. I've got a surprise for you. Thank you. You're welcome. That's from a, a Norwegian group that makes rather satirical jokes about the white saviour, what they call the white saviour mentality. I'm wondering when, even now in 2020, when an aid operation is mounted, what's the deep down thought process? Is it still Europe gives, Africa receives? An almost post-colonial kind of mentality. And Alan, I'm going to ask... You first, because you are African and you have seen aid operations on the ground. What's your feeling about that? Oof. Yeah, so um, uh, operations on the ground. I think one thing I've seen in the ICRC is that when it comes to aid, most of us at least put aside our personal beliefs, our internal conflicts with the organization, and we just get down and do it. And had the privilege to go to a number of countries and seen uh, operations going on. I've been to prisons, I've been to, and I've talked to national staff more than the international staff because I've, I've been a staff representative for two and a half years. So for me, it's talking to people and trying to figure out what are the problems. Do you feel that you are making a difference as a resident staff? Do you feel that you're part of a, a movement, a family, a culture? 
I guess when it comes to the actual work, we are all together in it. And it doesn't feel like there's a separation. It's only in those moments in between when it's time to go home and the international staff probably want to go out and have drinks. And you're thinking, I, I don't have that kind of money. Uh, <laughs> you know, little things like that. Like um, we, we don't speak the same language, and not just verbally, but we don't live the same lives. We don't have the same protections. And so that's the moment where the difference comes in. But I, in my experience, when it came to the work, we're all pretty focused on what we need to do. Danny had his, his hand up. So we'll go to you first, Danny. Well, Alan, I want to tell a little personal story. Uh, for three years, I worked in Harlem in New York City in a community-controlled school district. And my boss, the first day I came, said to me, Mr. Warner, remember, we will be here and you will leave. So even, Alan, whatever you do in the community, you're not going to be a permanent member of that community. So already in the structural things of what, what you do, there is already a certain inequality and a problem. And that has stayed with me for a long time. Lisbeth, when we were talking before we came on air to do the program, we were saying we both worked in former Yugoslavia, I mean, as a journalist and as an aid worker. And I do remember very clearly a fierce debate then of this kind of top-down, not so much giver and victim, but top-down, we've decided what you need and we're bringing it. Has that changed? Because then I saw then a lot of humanitarian aid, which with the best will in the world, because it hadn't actually consulted the community, was not successful. I do believe it has um, changed also. I mean, the fact that today the main responders of all of our organizations are indeed locally uh, recruited. Uh, so we have a large representation of the community, actually. I, that is something we seem to forget, that our well, better representatives of the community, we have them within our walls, within our houses. How can we not? Uh, implicate them more in the process. And I know how frustrating that is. I see Alan uh, nodding. But uh, has that changed? Yes. But it's something you need to keep being wary about. Like you need to relearn and relearn because in those crises, it is so easy to say, no, we have the experience that we have acquired elsewhere. It is, it is a large operation. It is a large machine. No, And these responses are or launched, but we keep learning the hard way that if you don't consult, it is also not going to work. And, you know, our response in the Ebola crisis in DRC is the best and most striking example of that. Just say, here we are, and we bring the treatment and the vaccination. And when I say we, I speak for all uh, humanitarian responders in that crisis, where the community was not even coming to the health centers anymore because there were not areas of safety. We had to, at some point, all of us, pause and redesign from scratch with the community. So it, it is vital. And, and that is a lesson we need to keep learning and learning. But I am, I am also very positive. I honestly believe the tree had to be shaken. And I, I, I also wanted to insist on that. I am very positive. This will uh, be a good um, lesson to learn. And uh, it will change us. Alan, what do you think? I mean, the original question was, is there something still in the 
deep in the subconsciousness of, of European aid workers, which leads them perhaps to not very not very collaborative decisions with the communities in which they're working. Yeah, sure. Um, there's It's still there. Uh, that's the honest truth. Uh, change is not going to happen in uh, just the three months, four months that we've been discussing this. So on a personal note, if, uh, say, we go out to the field and the ICRC has decided from Geneva that these communities need water, and I go and speak to them as a national, and they say, we don't need water, we need shoes. And I go back and I, I tell my manager, these guys don't need that water, they need shoes. I think the most obvious thing that would happen is friction. They would say, no, 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 no. We, we sent out teams and we talked to them, we talked to their leaders, and their leaders said they need water. And so my voice as a national who speaks their language and is sitting there with them and they say it's the shoes are the real problem, that would be something that um, would create friction. And I would start getting to a point where I fear for the safety of my job, knowing that I'm challenging things that I should not be challenging because they've been decided from different levels and I'm not in any of that decision-making process. So that is a reality and it remains a reality. So that in itself is a problem. And if the policy still exists where my say doesn't matter, then it's still institutionally racist. It doesn't factor in that maybe someone down there who's on the ground actually can come up with a better solution than what has been decided at the top. So yes, it does exist. Yeah, I would like to ask Alan a question. There has been a change in the head of the Swiss Development Agency. She used to be with the ICRC. That's it's right. Patricia Danzi. Oh, Patricia Danzi, yes. yes. I like Patricia Danzi, actually. Um, and I was sad to see her um, leaving. The fact that she was willing to go to the communities and sleep in a burnt-down school with other people who are suffering and get to know them. And I think that's a quality that each and every one of us should have if we're going to call ourselves humanitarians. Which she is possibly the first in Europe, but I'm not sure. She is the first black head of Switzerland's aid and development. So the Switzerland's equivalent of USAID or Switzerland's equivalent of DFID. And I don't know, I could be wrong, I'm ready to be corrected by any listeners out there. I don't know that another European country has a, an ethnic minority as a head of its uh, aid and development. So, I mean, do we see that as a step forward? It is a step forward. It, it is, definitely. But um, as, a, as a person of color, let me tell you that you have to do a lot, a lot more than anyone else would have to do. You have to stand out. You have to be that voice that always has the brilliant ideas, is willing to take on the craziest of the challenges, the dirtiest of the challenges. And that's the only way that you're going to make a difference. So in life, we grow up knowing that we have to work harder. We have to do more. So, yes, I, I think Patricia is going to do a, an excellent job, and I know it was not easy for her to get there. Okay. Well, I hate to say this, but we're actually already almost running out of time. But what I think has been really fascinating is to hear Alan and Lisbeth both welcome this letter from MSF and both give some really concrete examples of why that letter was necessary. Just to finish up, I'm going to ask each of you one key thing you'd like to see happen in the next 12 months that would make a letter like MSF's less necessary. Danny, I'm going to start with you before I go to the actual in-house experts. I think there's been enormous progress and I think there's been more sensitivity. 
to the problem, but I think all of the relations between the center, the periphery, Europe, Africa, Asia, and other places, we all have to rethink that constantly. Uh, and I think it's a structural problem as well as a racial problem. But I think we're more sensitive today than we were before. Um, I want to be able to tell my kids that they can do anything they want, especially in an organization like ICRC. If my son says, I love your organization, I would want to be a director one day. I tell him, yeah, that's very possible. So let's set you up on that career. Final word goes to Lisbeth from MSF. Well, Alan, I'll recruit your son. <laughs> Happily. Uh, what would I like to see happen in the, in the next 12 months? Uh, that uh, we really continue that discussion, that debate, the listening, but beyond listening and just taking note of the grievances also, uh, dig into what are really the barriers and what concrete action could we take. I very much am also a believer in you also create opportunity with the focus on, on how you develop people then in an organization. The, the importance of also having uh, representation at all levels, including at the highest levels, representation matters, role models do matter, but we have to work on it through the whole line. And the way to do that is to develop our staff, give them all the opportunities to do so. Well, thank you to all our guests, Alan Wendler of the ICRC, Lisbeth Aylbrecht of MSF, and as ever, our analyst, Danny Warner. A very thought-provoking discussion. We've just celebrated World Humanitarian Day, of course, where we honour aid workers. It's really heartening, fascinating to hear this internal debate and see that the people that many of us look at as the heroes, the 21st century saints, they have their faults and they are addressing them. With that, that's the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. A reminder that Inside Geneva is a Swissinfo.ch production. And if you want to hear more, you can subscribe to the Inside Geneva podcast series by going to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. There you can find all sorts of in-depth discussions, including an episode about the race for a vaccine against COVID-19, an exclusive interview with former UN Human Rights Commissioner Zaid Rad al-Hussein, and the perspectives of senior humanitarians on the future for Syria as the conflict enters its 10th year. I'm Imogen Folks. Join us again next time. And thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.